Welcome back into One Winning Pod, where we'll be discussing the Ravens for the first time in a month, which is pretty hard to believe, uh, considering the last time we were recording with State of the Division, taking a look at what the rest of the AFC North did this offseason, what the Ravens are going to have to contend with this year to go for the AFC North crown. Uh, but this week, we are bringing it back to the Ravens, and it is the offseason. It is slow news cycle. So we're going to be looking back into Ravens history and looking specifically this week at the wide receiver position. We have an interesting group of wide receivers this year, which it feels like we say every year because there's always something different with this group. There was an article put out a couple days, actually. I didn't realize this, but I don't know if you, if you, either you guys saw it. ESPN put out an article that uh, if Laquan Treadwell catches a pass this year, that the Ravens would become the first team in NFL history to have five former first-round picks catch a pass. Because we're assuming that Odell, Zay, Rashad, and uh, Nelson will all catch at least one pass at some point during the year. But it, it is pretty bonkers when you think about it that way, that that's what the Ravens receiving um, room is. But at the same time, we have a ton of questions about it, which screams to a patched together group something we're certainly not unfamiliar with with Ravens fans so part of this episode I should say most of this episode is going to be looking at the history of the organization with this position group and how we've gotten here how is this the one group on the roster that consistently year in and year out an organization that can I mean gosh has figured out every other position group in the NFL but yet wide receiver Every year we're holding our breath. So we're going to look at that and kind of what's led to that and look to see if, if the organization has, has learned from the lessons. Could this group finally be the one? We'll see. But uh, that's what we're going to delve into today. DaCosta promised a revamped room at the beginning of the year, and they took their time getting started. It wasn't until American Easter that the first move was made. Uh, I guess that's not true. I guess Aguilar came first. But... um. <laughs> he was such a, a noteworthy signing, knocking out our uh, <laughs> Josh Oliver comp pick possibilities that we were all like, you know, nonplus. But then they added the real big name of Adele Beckham Jr. And then, of course, Zay in the draft. And they weren't kidding. I mean, I was talking about it with a coworker today. It seems like five spots are pretty much locked up if you assume Duvernay is going to get a role. And that just means it's like the Tylen Wallace, James Prochet. Shamir Bridges, uh, Treadwell, roller coaster for that last spot um, on the projected you know roster of how many wide receivers they normally carry. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what it is. But it looks like at least three new names this year. Yeah, and I think you know we'll we'll go dive into some of the position groups. I think in years past, but um, you know certainly at least from the draft capital, I think the Ravens have been applying. Spent taking a lot more hits on first round wide receivers. Um, just from that alone, I feel like the makeup of this wide receiver room is definitely seems on paper a lot stronger than, I mean, even throughout like, you know, the, the 2010s, basically. It's definitely pretty rare for the Ravens, um, you know, at least in kind of the Ozzy Newsom era to really spend a lot of capital in that position group. So, yeah, I mean, you know, just from, you know, again, before anybody's kind of put the pads on, catching any passes at all, um, just from that, I think there's a lot to be excited about just because, you know, the Ravens haven't had to go to 
uh, free agency to be able to pick up a lot of these guys. Like I think they can make some moves. They've added some people in, but there's a lot of talent I think already in house. That yeah, when you talk about you know Devin Duvernay potentially being the fifth wide receiver in this group, I mean Duvernay I, I think showed some flashes last year to the point where you were like you know hey he could be a really good you know kind of gadget sort of you know, special teams returner kind of option um, and be reliable in the passing game as your fifth receiver like that's actually that that's really where I think you kind of want him to be. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think we should probably dive into it, just kind of go back a little bit to how the Ravens have kind of tried to address this position group and how we got to this area right now, which is, you know, where this group is, um, you know, built strongly through the the draft and, and having some nice uh, free agents to kind of round it out. Yeah, definitely. And uh, as you guys know, and loyal listeners of this podcast, I relish any opportunity we can to go back into Ravens history. So we are going to start this conversation all the way back at the beginning, 1996. Um, so honestly, the first couple years, as we talked about before, this is not years we know terribly well. Uh, so I'm going to do my best to summarize where the Ravens started with the wide receiver position. But um, if you're listening to this and you were a fan back then and and you know the, this era pretty well, f- feel free to reach out because... There is scantly any information on the internet to find about this. Very few highlights on YouTube to find. I even tried uh, getting ChatGPT to help me out with these early years. And they basically, like, if I typed in, why did the Ravens not re-sign Derek Alexander in 1998? ChatGPT basically said, Derek Alexander is a human who played professional football. For more information, <laughs> find newspaper clippings from the time period. So, find newspaper clippings. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. I mean, I can I can type it in real time what it told me. I'm, let's see. Man, that's the real weakness of ChatGPT if it's not. Right. Now, in fairness, it's ChatGPT3. I haven't paid to uh, try out 4 yet, so maybe 4 would be better for this, but... Can you imagine just like one version number just as the difference between absorbing, you know, I don't know, 4,000 years of human knowledge? That would be crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Basically everything from 96 <laughs> prior to that is oh, now man. on ChatGPT4. <laughs> so we'll get we'll get to that because um, actually we got to first start framing this discussion because um, what's very interesting if you go back to the first two years of the Ravens existence, those are obviously some squads that had some holes. Uh, neither of those teams in 96 or 97 boasted a winning record and neither of them was close but one of the strengths of those teams and possibly the strength you could argue uh was their wide receiver room in 96 you had uh michael jackson who was a vet receiver who really came into his own that year um just had a huge 1996 uh, catching passes from Vinny testaverde and also uh you had third year receiver Derek alexander both them eclipsed 1000 yards on the year. Uh, Alexander was an interesting case, uh, drafted first round by Cleveland in 94, had a great rookie year. And then in 95, hardly played because uh, Bill Belichick, I think that's all we need to say on his Wikipedia. It basically says he got in Bill Belichick's doghouse. And we've, we certainly know what that means over the years, but then coming to Baltimore, Ted Marchabroda took over for Belichick. He realized Alexander could ball. Alexander's in there and Alexander, Builds on that year, has an excellent 97 as well. Jackson doesn't quite top 1,000 yards, becomes close, finishing with around 900. During that time, too, you also had the Ravens draft Jermaine Lewis in the fifth round, um, who who tore it up in college. Apparently, he uh, ended his year, 
his time at Maryland as the leading career receiver in uh, receptions, I believe, for in the ACC ACC history. But only the fifth round pick. But so the, you know the Ravens had a lot of receiving talent there. But then this after the '97 season is when we start seeing issues with this room, and it's something that began the issues that we'll see throughout the Ravens' history to date with this position. Um, for reasons that I wasn't able to find out, and again, ChatGPT wasn't able to help me out either, so if you're a Ravens fan from this time period, you know the reason, let me know. Uh, the Ravens did not re-sign Derek Alexander in free agency. They let him walk. Uh, Casey bought him out. Five years, $17.5 million, too expensive for the Ravens back in 1998. Looking back on it, and not knowing the context, it feels like a really curious move because the guy had a lot more left in the tank. Goes to Kansas City, has really strong 98-99. Uh, and then in 2000, a year where the Ravens were lacking in offensive talent, uh, explodes, has a 1,391-yard season. But then after that, tore his Achilles, and, and that really was a downfall of his career after that. So the Ravens lost Alexander to free agency, and then Jackson struggled with injuries throughout 98, and that would end up being his final season in the NFL. Uh, so you're left there with Jermaine Lewis, who we remember you know, as, as mainly being a kick returner, having to be your top receiver, and as well as rookie second-round round pick Patrick Johnson, who we know never really turned out to be anything. So, yeah, interestingly, 1998 is the beginning of the Ravens realizing, hey, we need to figure out how to get this receiving room back upright and pretty quickly we saw we see a a position group that was quite strong when this franchise started out all of a sudden in tatters just two years later it doesn't take long for position groups to overturn we've seen that many a times i mean obviously we have the example of all of our uh, acquisitions with the wide receiver core this year but you can think about years prior where there's a huge vacancy because of a bunch of contracts going up and us not being able to re-sign and we have to refill a position group. So not terribly surprising. Uh, I would say, I forget what it is. I think it's something like um, 30 or 40% of your roster turns over every three years. Uh, it might be even higher. I know it's, it's, it's like surprisingly high. So it doesn't surprise me too much that this happened. But at the same time, um, it started a trend because this is right around when we started watching football and uh, it took until what? 2012 to feel like we had a competent wide receiver core (laughs) like i mean we were talking about this forever (laughs) all right so once again like i said i wasn't able to figure out exactly why the ravens didn't resign Derek alexander so i asked chat gpt i'm i can't find well which chat that i had that in um so then i re-asked it and now chat gpt is just bullshitting me they're they're (laughs) just listening that these are several reasons why teams might not re-sign a player. Number one, contract depends. Number two, performance or fit. Number three, salary cap considerations. Number four, strategic decisions. So, <laughs> there you go. That is what happens. Yeah, <laughs> that is what happens. Thank you, ChatGPT. I did not know any of that. Oh man, sure. After the 1998 season, obviously you had Brian Billick come in, and one of the things Brian Billick did when he came in was bring in a guy that many listening are likely very familiar with, Cadre Ishmael, uh, as a free agent signing. And what's really interesting about this signing uh, that I hadn't realized is that Cadre, you know, if we look back on it, when you think of Cadre Ishmael, you think of one of the few dependable targets during the Ravens' lean passing years who 
maybe the quarterbacks weren't always going to get him the ball, but when they did, you know, he was a guy who was going to make a play. Certainly not a guy you thought of as one of the star receivers in the league, but highly dependable, you know, athletic, can can turn the field if necessary. Um, he was going through a really difficult time in his career. Uh, came in as a second-round pick out of Syracuse, did okay in Minnesota before flaming out, and uh, bounced around Miami and New Orleans, didn't get any playing time. So his NFL career was basically uh, on the rocks. But Billick um, saw something in him when he was in Minnesota and brought him in, selling him to the organization as, as a guy who could who could be the guy. And lo and behold, 99, he has over 1,000 yards, including a, a huge game in Pittsburgh where he had three touchdowns, over 200 yards, all in the second half, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, just a, a huge third quarter from Tony Banks and Kadre Ishmael to beat the Steelers uh, at Three Rivers Stadium. And that was desperately needed because the Ravens desperately needed a to bring someone in either through the draft or free agency to, to be a primary pass catcher for this team. Uh, Patrick Johnson, they drafted in 98 in the second round, wasn't developing. Uh, so you go out, you get this guy, Kadre Ishmael, see if he has anything in the tank, and he turns in a career year. So... That's an interesting one, uh, considering, like you said, we look back on it, we're just like, oh, of course. You know, that seems like a, a solid uh, option to look at while you're waiting for a young guy to develop, get in this, this sturdy veteran, except Kaje was anything but that when the Ravens brought him in. Truly a, a shot in the dark, just a faith um, call there by Billick, and it obviously paid huge dividends for the Ravens. Yeah, it's definitely interesting, given, uh, you know, Billick's background is this you know, offensive genius. I know he, he, you know, he came over from this team in Minnesota, offensive coordinator of uh, some of the best offenses in the NFL up to that point. Uh, the 98 Vikings were a historic offense with guys behind, um, you know, Culpepper and Moss and, and Chris Carter and, and guys like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those you kind of think like, you know, as someone who kind of came from that team, you would have thought that maybe some players from those teams or at least you know guys of that caliber would kind of be brought over but um it really never kind of was the case it always seemed like you know the 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 ravens were bringing in guys of like cadre um i mean sharp i guess was a little bit later i know we kind of haven't gotten to him yet but i still would kind of argue like sharp kind of feels like maybe the second tier at that time um you know in terms of a signing um but uh, but yeah, it was, it was something you know. Aside from kind of like the coaching concerns later in Billick's career, that was you know kind of one of the big things in my opinion was just that you know we never really quite got the same level of offense when Billick was here, um, even though that's I mean that's exactly why we hired him. Yeah, Quadro was definitely one of those fan favorites. Kind of reminds me of a a Torrey Smith level of uh, dependability and resourcefulness for the team, and I just uh, you know it's fun that he's still part of Ravens lore. Obviously, he's still on uh, podcasts and radio shows and all that good stuff. So, glad he's part of the community. And um, yeah, this is definitely one of the first uh, big signings, obviously, for the Ravens in the wide receiver room that actually made sense. But uh, as we'll see as we go through the exercise, for him, there were like three or four other failures, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, an interesting stat that I found while researching this is that, you know, so in, in 96 and 97, between Michael Jackson, Derek Alexander, you had three 1,000-yard seasons. So two for Alexander and one for Jackson. 
from the period of 1998 through 1996, sorry, 1998 through 2006, the Ravens would only have three 1,000-yard ride receivers seasons. Uh, two from Ishmael in 99 and 2001, and then one from a guy we'll talk about later, Derek Mason, who I'm sure everyone's familiar with in 2005. That's... <laughs> You had three in the first two seasons of the franchise, and then you had that, what's that, eight, nine-season period with only three. Um, so obviously a lot of of issues there getting that room together. But um, I'm glad you brought up Sharp, Chris, because I think this is a good time to, to discuss this. Um, something I think that sometimes goes overlooked is we obviously know that the Ravens, Shannon Sharp, Todd Heap, uh, Dennis Pitta, Mark Andrews have, have a historic, just just found all these tight ends who are kind of tweener wide receivers, really. You know, they're, they can line up outside, they can go over the middle, they can do things that wide receivers can do, maybe a bit slower. But, you know, with, with Sharp, what they found in the front office was, hey, if we're struggling to put together a wide receiver room, let's just find people who can catch the ball and do something with it. And if you look in Ravens history, the top six players as far as career receptions and career yards it's a slightly different list of, of players between the two groups uh ha- only half that list is made up of wide receivers the other the other three are players are, are ray rice and uh todd heap and and dennis pitta in those lists so you look at this and obviously with ozzy newsom as a tight end in the front office role i think that it was an inevitability but the fact that the ravens were able to find tight ends who are effectively slower wide receivers consistently and be able to string that through their offense during these lean years of trying to find consistent talent, at the wide receiver position, uh, which they started in 2000 there there's, a, there's franchises in the NFL that are still trying to figure out how to do that. It feels like there's, you know, that's just things teams do, but there's still, you know, teams like, you know, Jacksonville or Cincinnati that just haven't. Um, the fact I can't imagine the Ravens offense, how much worse it would have been, it's hard to imagine it being any worse than it than it was during those years, but how much worse it would have been if they weren't able to figure out how to to how to find how to draft uh, that receiving threat tight end. That's just a, a matchup nightmare for the defenses when you can get them the ball. I wonder how much of our tight end success is due to the empty void left by the lack of wide receivers, and how much of it was intentional. I feel like it's probably a little bit of a mixture. Uh, these guys sure. were more of a opportunity to shine but obviously they were they were good right there's no denying chan sharp being good there's no denying heat being good um and i also think it's interesting the tight end position i don't know what its value was back then relative to now i think it's undervalued now maybe that's just the tight end truth in me but it's also it feels like with the how the nfl was back then with more running heavy schemes it'd be even more valuable then too so having a good tight end i think makes a lot of sense in the nfl and just for different reasons. Yeah, and you know, it's hard to go back that far and look cuz I mean before the tight end explosion in the NFL, which I guess happened somewhere around 2008 between 2008 and 2010ish. Yeah, I, I feel like tight ends were basically uh fast linemen that you you threw the ball to a little bit, you know. Their pass blocking was much more it was valued way more than than receiving skill for the reason, like you're saying, with with how run oriented it was. I mean, so thinking back to that time, we're talking about 2000. Outside of Shannon Sharp, you had uh, you definitely had Tony Gonzalez. You're still a few years away from Antonio Gates coming on the scene. 
Ozzie Newsom obviously was a huge receiving tight end, but he had been out of football for over a decade. Not many names come to mind. I'm sure there were there are more than what I'm saying right now. Um, but yeah, it was it was not common back then. I think got, having a player like Shannon Sharp was was definitely doing something revolutionary that not too many teams really had at that time. And at least if they did have a tight end who was catching a lot of passes. Um, they weren't putting up thousand yard seasons like like Sharp was. Granted, he, all, he put those all up with Denver. None of those with the Ravens. Um, you know, and, and averaging like between twelve and, and fourteen yards per catch. I mean, those are uh, th- those are uh, wide receiver numbers that you're putting up from the tight end position. So, yeah, kind of going back to something you said earlier, Alec. Um, yeah, it's it, it's interesting and just kind of looking at this sort of first era, the first couple of years. Um, you know, obviously, you know, the franchise just getting started. Um, it, it it like one, there's no precedent for any decisions that are kind of made in terms of roster construction. So, I mean, yeah, the Ravens could have decided to uh, re-sign guys like Jackson and Alexander and decided to be kind of a wide receiver heavy team. Because they didn't do that, I feel like those decisions really just sort of kind of shape, honestly, the first era of the Ravens organization, right? Um, and so, yeah, it's it's just, it's interesting kind of how you get into this position of, you know, it, obviously it worked out well for us. It culminated in the Super Bowl in 2000. Um, so, you know, I, I guess you can sort of make the assumption that maybe that was the right call um you know I, I don't have all the data in front of me but i i think there's probably an argument to kind of be made from the front office of you know those decisions i'm sure saved x amount of dollars those dollars were then allocated to other free agents that they brought in they also drafted other people and while sure there might have been missteps kind of in that process i think it's kind of an interesting thought exercise to kind of say like you know maybe there actually was a really good uh, you know, decision that they made by not re-signing those guys and sort of going for this method of, you know, let's draft some later round wide receivers. We'll bring in a couple of free agents, um, maybe not the the tier one, tier two kind of guys, but you know, um, people that have kind of make the room better, but may not be the, you know, the elite of the elite players. Um, I think it's interesting. Yeah, and I, I definitely think that you know, Ozzy being the general manager, I. I would have to imagine that has to have something with it, right? He has an idea of how he played. He know, I mean, obviously he's a Hall of Fame player, right? So he has an idea of what he's looking for in that position group. He he was that guy, right, for a long time, and I'm sure with that also comes like, I, I'm sure as a player, right, he probably had some ideas about like what types of offenses or what types of you know guys he liked to play with, right? What was what worked for him when he was in uh, the league? So yeah, I never, I guess I never thought about it that way um kind of putting that all together but uh certainly you know i think that that is the kind of the the, the main decision or the main you know uh factors i think to kind of how the ravens just approach the wide receiver position group well they certainly tried to make some uh big swings to fix the wide receiver group after the 99 season so obviously they brought in cadre and then in 2000 they drafted out of florida state travis taylor um you know, Travis Taylor, I, I don't was not able to find any um, draft analysis, any quotes as to what the Ravens were hoping they would get from him. Um, obviously, our view on a guy like Travis Taylor is is so clouded with what actually happened. It's hard to say was there a different path for this guy that where he could have you know lived up to that 
high draft capital, a 10th overall pick in the 2000 draft. But for what it's worth, you know, he did have a, a, he does have a spot in Ravens history. Interestingly, both in the 2000 season, both Patrick Johnson and Travis Taylor, while both uh, pretty unarguably being busts for the Ravens, um, they still both had uh, big moments in that regular season. Travis Taylor caught two touchdown passes in that uh, shootout against Jacksonville, which was in week two, which was obviously a huge catalyst for that season. And then Patrick Johnson catching the game-winning touchdown pass uh, in Tennessee in that regular season game where the Ravens gave the Titans their first loss in that stadium. Um, a stadium that's apparently going to be replaced in a few years, I found out. Apparently, they're building a, a giant palace in Nashville for the Titans. going to be opening in 2027, interestingly. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, Taylor, um, in 2001 and 2002, the Ravens just kind of feels like they just kind of rested on their laurels there and saying, like, hey, we're going to try and develop this guy to be the guy didn't bring in anyone else from, uh, from the wide receiver department to, to really challenge him. They did draft Todd Heap in 2001, again, looking at the athletic tight end as a way to um, help out a struggling wide receiver room. But then in 2003, we see the beginning of the Ravens trying to find a, an established vet guy to really come in and help this young receiving group. And this brings us to an interesting offseason where the Ravens bring in two vet guys, one of which fans probably remember, the other of which probably not. <laughs> so a big free agent signing that the Ravens were really trying to get in 2003 was a vet wide receiver. And they tried to get um, David Boston, who was a guy who just had some big years uh, with the San Diego Chargers, weren't able to get him. He ended up signing with Miami. Then they tried to go after Curtis Conway. Conway went to the Jets. So they settled on signing a veteran wide receiver from Arizona who'd had some strong years, but had struggled with injuries the previous two years. Um, Frank Sanders, uh, I was able to dig up a press clipping from this signing uh, back in 2003. And this was seen as a pretty big deal at the time for the Ravens to, to make this signing. You got a direct quote from this article from ESPN. The acquisition of Sanders, age 30, alleviates the need for the Ravens to reach for a wide receiver in the draft. Um, the Ravens were very excited to have made this move. However, we we know that Sanders, unfortunately, uh, his injuries continued. He hardly saw the field in 2003. Uh, so instead, the Ravens also brought in another vet wide receiver, Marcus Robinson, uncle to uh, Demarcus Robinson, who played for the Ravens last year. But they only brought him in on a one-year prove-it contract. Like Cadre, he had started out strong in his NFL career, kind of had some issues uh, going forward. But yeah, he would ironically be the one who would have a strong season, albeit not till the second half when Anthony Wright came in. Um, but yeah, Sanders gone after one year in 2003. That four-year deal turned out to not be not be that much. And Robinson... The Ravens would have liked to resign him, but they didn't think they needed to resign him because they thought that in 2004 they'd made an even bigger splash by trading for uh, one of the top wide receivers and top divas in the NFL at that time, <laughs> Terrell Owens, who I'm sure I don't need to tell anyone the story of what happened there. But what is what is sometimes forgotten in that whole debacle during that time when the Ravens thought they had T.O. and in the, the kind of um, waiting period when they had to figure out what was actually up when when T.O. started, you know, raising the drama that he did. Uh, the Ravens lost out in the shot to re-sign Marcus Robinson. He signed with the Vikings. Had had a decent, you know, career for the past, last three or four years of his career there. 
not great, but certainly something, you know, a dependable vet there. Um, and so when he was gone, when T.O. Was, was at the Eagles and Marcus Robinson with the Vikings, they fall back and basically signed Frank Sanders 2.0. Kevin Johnson, another guy who, if Ravens fans forgot he ever was on the team or can't remember a single highlight, uh, like myself, of this guy ever catching a football, uh, that's, yeah, <laughs> kind of a really bad fallback plan there. Go from T.O., to uh to kevin johnson but just didn't work out ravens tried to to make a a really high swing here first with frank sanders in 2003 then with to in 2004 both fell apart but for different reasons and uh there's there is some bad luck here when you look back here at at the ravens plan with the wide receiver room like there are some moves here that you can argue were good like on paper i can understand why the ravens looked at frank sanders and said this guy can be someone we can bring in it can take the load off travis taylor we have Todd Heap, who just came off a Pro Bowl year. Like you give this all to a young quarterback, that's a solid. That's a solid group. But you know, injuries happen in the NFL. Age happens in the NFL. Personalities happen in the NFL, and they just kind of got stuck with with uh, two bad plans in a row that didn't work out in their favor. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think you know that you know was the time, really. I think to just from like a roster perspective, I think that was definitely, those were two of the years I think that probably having a reliable weapon at the receiver position would have really paid dividends. Right. I mean, you look at the, you look at the offenses, obviously probably don't think Kyle Bowler was the one, even if he did have a stronger supporting cast, probably was not going to be the guy, but look at the rest of the roster. I mean, you have Jamal Lewis at the running back position, historic 2003 season, right? You look at a uh, third year player, Todd Heap, um, also very effective. Um, you know, the Ravens ended up doing a little bit uh, in that season from what they had. Um, but, you know, you added kind of an extra signing of, a, you know, not elite, but high-end wide receiver at that time. I think that really kind of helps out, round out the offense. Um, it was very sorely needed. But, yeah, I think you're right, Peter. Like, you know, they, they ended up taking some shots. Um, you know, the the, <laughs> the, the, the T.O. misstep, I think, was – definitely something that you know probably could have been really interesting i think in the time um it's 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 one of those it's one of those moves i feel it's it's almost like the uh the crazy what ifs right here's another one if like if you know say if belichick came over from when the browns (laughs) became the ravens right that you know (laughs) we would have all of a sudden had a hall of fame level coach um, on this franchise as well it's I, I feel like the to one while maybe not the same kind of level of what if i i, I do think you know to is a really great player obviously a hall of fame player um, ended up having some great seasons with the eagles after that as well um taking them to the super bowl a couple of years later yeah it's a shame it didn't work out but um but i will say on the positive side what guy will get to next um in 2005, I thought was probably one of the best pickups for the Ravens. So I'll say the bad luck didn't last too long. Yeah, and uh, it's it's funny. Uh, I got a press clipping here too from when the Ravens uh, signed Derek Mason. Literally day one of uh, free agency that year, uh, the Ravens wasted no time here. They, Derek Mason was their number one target, according to Newsom and Billick. And apparently Derek Mason's number one target was the Ravens. Um, interestingly enough, considering that he used to be division rivals there during his time with the Titans when they were both in the AFC central, but yeah, it, what's interesting. So this starts a, an era of the Ravens actually getting hits in free agency, um, which was both good and bad. Uh, we'll get to why it was a little bad later on. And I think, you know, 
some of you already know where we're going with this, but um, so yeah, Derek Mason, uh, followed by Anquan Bolden and Steve Smith, like three absolutely excellent veteran free agent signings the Ravens had here. All three coming here at their age 30 or older season and continuing to dominate, um, which which is just incredible if you, if you think about it. Uh, Mason in particular, just, just a rock of consistency. You could argue underrated player. We, we think we've talked about it before. Mason himself has vented on Twitter that he feels like he was underrated with both the Ravens and the Titans fan base these days. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, Derek Mason was absolutely a move that the Ravens had to make. It had a huge impact on the offense. You don't have 2006 being what it was without Mason, even though statistically he had a down year that year by his standards was huge in helping out Flacco in his early years. Uh, just a guy, the, the definition of uh, a, a pro's pro who you knew what you were getting week in and week out, the guy just kept his body in incredible shape. I mean, like, he had a, a ton of lean muscle. The guy just, I, I feel like, had an excellent excellent work ethic and just played at a high level until his, his later mid-30s. So just one of the all-time best free agent signings that the Ravens have made and probably the best wide receiver to have worn a Ravens uniform to this date. I'll never forget that one game where Mason like didn't have an arm and he was still catching everything. Yep. That was against Detroit, right? <laughs> I think so. I think, yeah. And uh, and yeah, I mean, six seasons coming in at age 31, that's just bonkers. I, I honestly think, Derek, all your fans are on Twitter, it seems like, because uh, <laughs> how can you not remember this guy and, and love him? You know, I know he was one of the... Uh, evil doers at Tennessee for a little bit there, but once he was, you know, family, he was family. Like he, I felt like he put on the cape many times for this franchise, dependable in the red zone. Uh, one of my favorite players that we ever acquired in free agency. And I mean, the quotes say it themselves, like Ozzy and Billick both made huge statements saying that, yeah, he was the biggest pickup. Yeah. I think Mason was particularly interesting too. Um, you know, as you guys mentioned with him, being on the Titans, those Titans teams for so long. I mean, you look at all the Ravens, you know, highlights from the 2000 season, like Mason's there. <laughs> I mean, um, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to, to forget. I mean, you look at their kind of like trio of guys, right? You had, um, you know, McNair who also ended up coming, played it for the Ravens a little bit later. McNair was a very good quarterback as younger, uh, Eddie George, very, very, very good running back. And then you had Derek Mason as well. So their trio of offensive players, very good. Um, you know, it's it's one of those franchises. I think sometimes you forget, I guess, how good they were at the time because, you know, um, like I'm sure a lot of really good franchises are. They just didn't win the whole thing. So, uh, you know, you're kind of uh, forgotten a little bit in that respect. But um, came so close yeah, though, though. Yeah, yeah, literally, literally so close. Um, the was it uh, was the '99 the year before, right? '99, yeah, just stopped at the two or whatever yep. it was. Yep. Yeah, but but anyway, um, I wanted to bring up basically that like you know Mason's really interesting because I feel like he had such an insight as to you know kind of the Ravens culture and like how they like to play the game. I mean, I feel like you know I, Peter, I feel like you've kind of talked about this before about in the you know late '90s, early 2000s that Tennessee was really kind of a reflection of the Ravens at that point. Like that was the rivalry, um, you know, 
they they played each other very very well um and and while you know there were a lot of really good battles right even though the ravens ended up coming on top in a couple battles in 2000 you know for a couple of those years like the the titans were just as good if not better on offense and their defense was no slouch either right they were they were definitely kind of uh one of the top teams in that category so it's it's not really a surprise that they ended up winning the division many times during that era so i think that's interesting just from you know whether you know mason from like a skill perspective like i definitely agree like was the right player at the time but i do feel like kind of that added just knowing what the franchise is about and what they're looking for in that position i feel like that had to add something right i feel like between kind of the three guys you mentioned here mason bolden and steve smith bolden is probably the only one i maybe would take that back a little bit on just because cardinals are a little bit of a different organization there but but my point i guess being is that i think some guys who might look at the ravens and kind of what they're about may not feel that you know they would like it here per se, because maybe they don't agree with or like kind of how the offense or like the team in general, like philosophy kind of runs. But I feel like Mason is one of those guys both had the skill and had the philosophy match, which I think really kind of added to his success here. He just, you know, even when the offense wasn't humming or clicking or anything, like he knows enough about to be able to kind of stay the path and, you know, believe into the system and and, and produce at a high level. You know what, Alec, I'm, I'm thinking back on it. I think that that was... Um so there was two things. He was hit hard and might have like broken his shoulder or something on what was it like a sixty-two yard touchdown catch he had against Detroit in two thousand nine. But I think you're right. I think what was it? I think it was late in the oh eight season. So Flacco's rookie year that he played some string of games with just one arm. I'm think I'm remembering vaguely him catching a touchdown pass against Dallas with one of his arms and then just like going down in pain because he was just playing through that whole thing but yeah just just a warrior guy um and you know that period uh 2005 to, t- to 2014 the big three the big three hits there in free agency were were mason bolden and um smith i, I say i say free agency but it was also trades because bolden was actually actually we, we trade we only gave up a third and a fourth round pick to arizona for bolden which seems crazy with what we were able to get from him after that. But um, there were some other names that the Ravens brought in, and I think those names gelled well because of the players that were there. Um, you look at guys like Jacoby Jones. We obviously remember him mainly as a returner, but he was de- decent at, for what the role he was needed to be in the regular season as a deep threat. Obviously, his, his postseason heroics vastly overshadow anything he did at any other point in his career with us. And then, you know, you got guys, TJ Hushmanzada was here for a year. He did fine. Um, I think he was remembered more for what he wasn't than what he was because we desperately needed a, a receiver who could uh, be a burner on the outside, which Hushmanzada never was during his career and certainly wasn't as he got older. And that all really came to a head in that playoff game against Pittsburgh. You had a guy like Kelly Washington who came in in 2009. Not a guy you were expecting to do anything, made some plays. You know, he was decent. Um, I'm sure you had misses, you know, during that time you had, uh, Dante Stallworth, a guy they probably never really should have signed, barely played at all in 2010 and, and then was cut. How can we forget Lee Evans, Lee Evans, uh, uh, Lee Evans, that a move that seemed like it would be, it couldn't go wrong and, and did in, in ways that you never could have imagined. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the organization 
for for they they found a, a little bit there where they could find these players aging who and they were able to find them and they still had quite a bit left in the tank which was great but then i think part of the the downside of that was you know after the signing of steve smith and then kind of to today we see the ravens drafted excuse me signed a good bit of vet receivers maybe went a little overboard on that and really with any of these guys none of them even if they you know a guy like mike wallace who had some early success uh when they were brought in none of these guys came anywhere close to bringing back uh the returns that you had with those three and i think that the ravens kind of got into a habit there of of trying to cover up failures in in the draft department of bringing in guys um even even guys like mark clayton and tory smith who would who would have some success um tory smith obviously some huge heroics in the postseason but uh, just weren't able to quite be that guy to be that that number one that top target and you got to find someone to play the position so they had to keep going by that formula but just haven't been able to find that steady vet presence that you can count in year in and year out uh since the retirement of steve smith Maybe that'll be OBJ. There's a chance. <laughs> there is a chance. I have thoughts on that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I think OBJ, um, OBJ is, is so interesting. And I even have some notes in here. You can look at OBJ and you can take the argument. Like we look at the guys who were able to do well. Mason, Bolden, Smith. All three of those guys were coming off of consecutive strong seasons coming into Baltimore. Uh, Mason was coming off like something like four straight 1,000-yard seasons. I mean, Steve Smith, obviously, every year of his career, he's been healthy. He was great. The same goes for Bolden coming in. He was a seven-year vet. He had had over 1,000 yards in every season, uh, in five of his seven seasons. Um, the only two that he didn't, he was on pace for it, but he got hurt halfway through the, those years. Um, but So you can look at that, and you look at OBJ. Obviously, he's coming in hurt. He He hasn't had his strongest seasons in quite a bit but at the same time you know like we said we've seen the Ravens bring in vets and some sometimes a change of scenery helps get them back on track like uh, a Marcus Robinson or a Mike Wallace uh, even though his his uh, success wasn't sustained his 2016 season was still a step up from what he had had um, when he bounced around the league in, in Minnesota and Miami after leaving Pittsburgh or, or even going back to Cadre Ishmael you know um, so it could go either way with OBJ. We'll see. Um, I really don't know which way. I, <laughs> I've, I've debated in my head. I talk myself into either argument. He'll have a great year. He'll have a not great year. We're just going to have to wait and see, I guess. <laughs> but I don't know if either of you guys feel strongly one way or the other what we're going to get out of OBJ this season. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, when I'm kind of looking back to the, the three guys here that we brought in that really kind of define the uh the wide receiver one position for the ravens you know obviously you know i think the similarities are kind of there in that you know they were the top target i mean you know obj was top target for you know the giants for a long time not so much for the rams i guess cup was really that guy so he was more of a number two in that role um years on the browns sort of but it never really worked i don't know it felt like he was the top target sometimes but then he would just never catch anything so i'm a little unsure on that on that perspective but one thing i did kind of want to add here is that you know i i, I feel like the there, there's definitely an element of the vet formula here of like trying to find guys who are either at or really like the ravens are really confident that they could kind of that they had 
had enough experience to really be the guy in terms of like leading, you know, the, the, the top pass catcher for the offense. Um, you know, Bolden, I think is one of those guys of like who was, um, then the Cardinals just happened to draft future hall of famer, Larry Fitzgerald, and they sort of became a number two, but Bolden was definitely showed enough to, to be that guy. And like you said, Peter, he was consistent, you know, there, the Cardinals offenses that time were very, very good. And Bolden was getting over a thousand yards. And, and so was Larry Fitz. And, um, I believe that 2008 squad that they had, they had three guys over a thousand yards. So, um, you know, I, I think you take Bolden off that team and you put him anywhere else, like he's going to be the the top target. Same thing with Steve Smith. Obviously did that a long time for the Panthers. Mason, obviously for the Titans. You know, I, I really think, you know, one kind of surprising signing, which, you know, in hindsight, I feel like it only really worked because the Ravens had a guy in Bolden already was Jacoby Jones. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember some of his years on the tight or excuse me, the Texans. Uh, but I remember that 2011 game, I believe that the Ravens ended up playing the Texans and actually I think it was 2010, I believe it was the game. No, 2011. Where, um, You're right. Was it, was that the game with, um, uh, what's his name? What's his name? The quarterback we had, um, Josh Wilson. Okay. Where he had, where that he had was the, 2010. The, yeah. I thought you were talking about a different game. Yeah. No, you're right. 2010. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think it was that game. Anyway, yeah. it was, it was one game where I think the Ravens ended up punting the ball away and then Jacoby just completely muffed it. I think actually, you know what? Mm-hmm. It was 2011. It was 2011 because um, I think Jimmy Smith was on the recovery. I think. Yeah. Um, he, de- he definitely muffed, I think two punts in that playoff game in 2011. He might've muffed yeah. a punt in the, in that regular season uh, overtime game too. Yeah, I, th- I think that's what it was because I remember it being a primetime game. So that's I I, th- I think it was that one. But but anyway, I bring that up of just like Jacoby was like far from like a really solid player with the Texans, especially making moves like that, which are game breaking plays to make. <laughs> like, I mean, he, you know, he obviously, you know, he had some returns as when he was on the Texans, but um, plays like that, you end up in the Harbaugh's doghouse and you don't get out. Right. So, you know, that I, I feel like Jacoby signing was really like. You make that any other year, that's really not going to work out. But for whatever reason, like the Ravens had Bolden, you know, whatever Jacoby stepped up of his own, you know, obviously, you know, he is, he did a great job even for the couple of years after um, 2014 uh, up until 2014. I think he did a, a really excellent job. But, you know, my point is, I, I feel like, you know, um, sometimes the Ravens are just taking shots. And that's, I feel like if you don't have that top guy, you're just kind of taking shots on these other guys and like hoping that one of them kind of pans out. A lot of times that doesn't really work, but um, you know sometimes if you kind of already have some some pieces there and you're able to kind of pick up guys who can be complementary and show off their skills in kind of other ways, but don't have to be that top guy, you can end up with a Jacoby Jones who you know I, f- I feel like many Ravens fans would agree like this guy's beloved and while he was never that sort of alpha guy that we like to talk about these big three, um, certainly had a great career with the Ravens and very beloved here. So you know I I think it, it can happen, but um, you know, you, uh, you have to kind of have some pieces there already to, to be able to build up this, these sort of complementary pieces. Yeah. I mean, so we'll, we'll see, we'll see if, uh, Odell can be one of those, one of those guys, one of those throwbacks to a vet wide receiver coming in here and, and being a rock. Uh, we'll see, you know, for what it's worth, I'm slightly interested in Aguilar. I have no hopes. I'm just saying, I'm, I'm just keeping an open mind and I think that he might be someone who, who could maybe be like a, J- a Jacoby Jones and just come in here. 
I don't think he's going to be a kick returner, but a guy who can make some plays down the field just because there's so much attention on other guys. You know, like you're saying, Aguilar, Jacoby Jones, that signing in a vacuum doesn't really move the needle for you. But when you look at who else they're going to be playing with and what other opportunity, what opportunities might be there for for them as defenses focus on on bigger names like Odell and, and Mark Andrews and, and of course Lamar. Always, I got to keep uh, an eye on Lamar if you're a defense. Um, so it's interesting. But I think one final note to look here, something I think that sometimes goes under the radar here is this shift that the Ravens have done. You know, we talked earlier in this episode about how after the 2002 season, the Ravens started trying in earnest to make a big swing in bringing a, a big name vet wide receiver to this offense. It was ugly at first, but eventually they found their guy in Mason and that got them into into a groove where they were able to find this talent. And I think you look at the draft, they're starting to do that. There are some people in the org- in the fan base who aren't a huge fan of how Eric DaCosta drafts. They feel like the Ravens are doing a better job under Newsom. I think that we could debate that, but I think something that is certainly a trend that you look at that's quite clear is that the Ravens are taking a lot more shots with Eric DaCosta than they were with Ozzie Newsom uh, with drafting wide receivers. I mean, good gosh. You look at from 1998 through 2011, the number of wide receivers that the Ravens took in any draft in the first three rounds, you have six guys over that period of almost a decade and a quarter. Since 2019, I mean, the Ravens have drafted four just in that time period. You've got Marquise Brown, first round in 2019. The next year, you draft Duvernay in the third round. Then you draft Bateman in the first round in 21. Zay Flowers in 23. I, you know, we can discuss, are they taking the, the best shots on these guys? Are they drafting the right type of players? You know, I feel that's a healthy discussion we could have because obviously, while we have have faith that, that Zay and Bateman can be that guy, we don't know yet. We haven't seen enough from them. Fan base is split onto whether or not Marquise Brown was worth that first round pick. Uh, Duvernay, uh, we talked about him at the top of the show. But I think you look at that and you, and you got to look at what the organization is. They're taking shots. And I, th- I think if you continue to take shots, eventually something's going to be going to happen. I mean, heck, this, this organization forever, we were saying, first decade in existence, they couldn't draft a quarterback. Look at this organization now. Since 2006, they've drafted three Pro Bowl quarterbacks. They found a Pro Bowl quarterback off the street and is an undrafted free agent. And on top of that, they drafted a Super Bowl MVP. Heck, I never even made a Pro Bowl. Look at that. So, you know, if, the, if they can f- turn around how they drafted uh, quarterbacks, I think they, can, they, you know, they just continue to take shots. I think eventually something can click with this organization with wide receiver. And, you know, they'll have to, to rely on, the, on finding the veteran free agents less and less and just like a lot of... Pretty, I mean, gosh, pretty much every other position group that we have on this team, just looking to the draft to, to fill it up and to, to bring new guys in. So that brings us to today. That's the long, meandering journey to how the Ravens find themselves with a wide receiver room this year that will be sporting five former first-round picks, two of which the Ravens drafted, three of which they brought in from other organizations. And we'll see if this is the one. It is a fascinating turnaround the second Tacosta was in charge, the amount of capital that's gone into wide receivers. I mean, I feel like Marquise Brown has to be called a hit. You were able to get almost exactly the same trait or draft capital back from him after years of service. Uh, so that, that feels like a hit. 
Rashad Bateman, unfortunately, has had these injuries, but he definitely could still be that guy. Duvernay in the third round was a, a, a slow burn, so to speak, but I feel like he's contributed enough to to warrant his draft position. I guess you would want a little bit more maybe out of a third round pick, but honestly, like he's contributed on a, a decent amount of levels, and I I hate to say, I wonder how much better he could have been outside of a Greg Roman offense. Um, maybe not that much better for what it's worth, but I guess I feel like we didn't really use him to his best, uh, routes in our offense. Cause we just didn't run those routes often. Like I think well, we can still, we huh? can still, we're going to find that out this year, aren't we? No. Cause now he's buried on the depth chart. I mean, unless there's in- injuries, I don't foresee him being out there often. I could certainly uh, see him. I could, I could see, I could see yeah. a little bit. Like yeah, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you my part. You say your part. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 that's kind of where I'm at. But uh, I mean, yeah, and then obviously Wallace disappointing so far. He never really got back from that injury, it seems, where people thought he might be a second rounder. And then uh, James Prochet, uh, we don't need to talk about him anymore. It makes me sad. Uh, <laughs> so I saw in the PSL uh, email that he was like some of the fans got offered like a day with James Prochet and like he showed him around the facility, asked some questions, like saw him practicing and all that. And I was like, man, the fan club met one more time, but they didn't invite me. (laughs) (laughs) They were tired of the, of the endless hope that you promised them. I know that was, that was unrequited, (laughs) but no, actually, you know, I, 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 I understand what you're saying with Duvernay, but I also think there's a world, you know, again, we're talking about these, the, how sometimes you bring in a vet wide receiver who struggled with a lot of injuries and it works out, but other times, you know, their body continues to break down and that they don't, they're not on the field that much. I think there's certainly a path this year where that's, that's what Odell is. And there's also a path where, I mean, Aguilar is, a, I think, a giant question mark. He could come in here and he could be a, a reliable deep threat that we use, you know, gets anywhere between one to four targets a game, or he could be a guy who's just, you know, the, the, his career's it, he's used up his career. I mean, I think there's a, Duvernay has, still has a very real chance to be the number three wide receiver on this depth chart for the team, uh, if not for the entire season, for at least a portion, you know, injuries happen. Like I said, uh, vet, vet games can happen with, you know, a nagging injury for a vet like Odell. But yeah, I, I do agree with what you're saying. You know, there's also a very real path where he is not only active for special team snaps because, um, we have best case scenarios for the four guys who are presumably ahead of him on the depth chart too. So, yeah. Yeah, and even like Zay could take some time. Bateman might need time for his injury. So. Yeah, that's right. All, all, yeah. all the above, I think. Could all these guys have injury happen. history. I think we're 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 expecting a lot to say all all these guys are going to be healthy, and Duvernay's going to just like not be able to get any snaps. <laughs> it feels unlikely that that's that'll be the case. Yeah, I mean the the, the good news is I think even. I think the I think the Ravens are have done a good job now. They have enough guys such that like i mean you don't you don't need five wide like you don't need like five like really good wide receivers right three is great if you have three right but really i only in my opinion i think you only need like probably like two really good targets and the ravens are fortunate you know kind of how their roster is kind of uh looking and they have they have the 1a guy in mark andrews like 
I mean, we're talking like 2021, like he was basically a receiver, right? Yeah. Um, he was winning those one-on-one routes against like the Packers best corner, like on that game that Huntley played. So like he, like we're fortunate that we kind of already have one guy already locked down. And so now at this point, like, I think you really only need one other guy to really be that guy. And we have basically like three or four names that could fill that spot. And so at that point, now all you're looking for is just like role players who can make big plays when they're called upon, whatever that is. So, yeah, I think there's plenty of opportunities for it. It's a lot better of a position group to have than in like 2017, 2018, where, I mean, you know, Crabtree, Macklin, you know, Smoke was good. I, I think he was a good role player. Seth Roberts, I think it was okay. But like, you know, some of those teams were just like, you had to bring in like three of these really cheap vet guys and then hope that that wouldn't hold you. And they just never did. <laughs> so I saw an article that suggests that, um, <laughs> like the fancy community doesn't know what to do with these wide receivers, right? We have three wide receivers and the projections are like all the same. Like everyone's about the same. Um, and they're just like, you know, very much in the middle of the rounds. No one knows what to do. And I'm curious what you guys think about distribution and yardage totals going in. Honestly, I feel quite similar and I wouldn't be surprised at all if the stat lines are relatively similar for all these guys, um, with like the high end, like the low end case being like 600 yard seasons, again, assuming no injury. But then, like, the high-end situation of 800, 900, 1,000. Like, I mean, 1,000 would be really quite something, probably. But mm-hmm. 800, 900, I could completely see. Maybe one guy getting 1,000, the other two getting 800 or something like that. Um, definitely curious. My lean is, I know that I think I think the uh, lounge guys who, you know, they get a little extra sneak peek. They see more practices. They, you know, they have a little bit better of an idea than we do uh, sitting at home. But... They think it might be Odell. I want to go with one of the younger guys personally, because we know that they'll be a part of the plans going forward. (laughs) Whereas we don't have as much hope with Odell. We hope that they could sign him again because that would really help with the dead cap money next year. But, uh, and then, you know, obviously he's able to revitalize his career. I think that'd be a lot of fun, but at the same time, like we just don't, we don't know. So my hunch is that it's going to be, one of the two younger guys and I'd lean it being Bateman, even though there's like the injury concerns. I was talking to Jason from Huddle Up Films today and he he said this, which I thought was actually pretty, pretty smart. He thinks that Bateman's gonna have a similar season to Hollywood in nineteen when he was recovering from the Liz Frank, showing glimpses of being great. And as long as he has like all the availability, like, you know, he's around the whole season, he'll put together a pretty good year, but he probably won't be a full 100. Yeah, I could I could definitely see that Bateman is, is is such an interesting it's such an it's such an interesting one with with that injury. I will say I think for for me I'm looking at the targets. I I, I do still think that number 1 in this targets on this team is going to be Mark Andrews. Uh Lamar has that connection with him. He's got more games experience, more trust with Andrews than anyone else on this team. Um I think that he'll still be the number 1 there. And then outside of that, it, like you're saying, I think when we're looking, really looking at breaking down these wide receivers, it's so hard. Um, it's so hard. I think that, yeah, I, I'll, I'll say this. 
before I considered, you bring up a good point with, with Bateman's injury. So I'm just going to say my original take. I just went straight to 2021 and I looked at the target distribution there because we saw, we think that we're going to see a lot of passing under Munkin and we saw a, a high volume of, of passing under Roman in that year. Granted, of course, the quality of all of it, you know, we could, we can poke holes in that, but the volume was there. You look at your top six targets there. You had Andrews at 153 targets, Brown at 146, Bateman at 68, Watkins at 49, Duvernay at 47, Prochet at 20. I think that you're going to look at a very similar distribution here. I, I think you're going to look at Andrews, number one there, 153. I think you lower that 146 number from from Bateman at least 20 to 25. I think that number six on there, you see Prochet at 20. Up that to, to about 40 to 45 for Duvernay. But then Duvernay's number of 47 targets, I could see that for Aguilar. 49 for, to Watkins, I could see that for, for Zay. 68 to Bateman. I could see that for Odell. I'm just, I'm just not buying. I have a hard time believing he's going to play a full 17 game season. I could certainly see him being inactive for three or four games. Um, just with all the injuries that he has had, um, just all the wear and tear to his body. So that's where I'm going as a starting point since this is the the first I've, I've actually thought of this at all. (laughs) And it'll be interesting to revisit this, this topic again, you know, sometime during the during the training camp or the preseason, because my after some time to to chew on it, I might update those numbers a little bit. But those that's my initial look at it. Yeah, I'll say from my side. I mean, I think my top three are probably going to be Andrews, Odell, and then I want to say Bateman, but I feel like Aguilar's got the he's got the availability, so I maybe yeah. lean him lean toward him for number three. That is, that is an underrated trait for Aguilar. We, you know, we're talking about injury concerns for a lot of these guys. He's he's played full 16, 17 games in like all but one year, and that then that game he, year he played like thirteen games. Right. Yeah, I I think the the main reason I think I maybe I feel good about Odell and his target share right now is um, one. I mean, he's had over a full season to get healthy. So if we're looking at like just guys getting healthy, I think he probably has the best shot to have put his injury behind him. Whereas Bateman is probably going to be, it's going to be lingering, I think for a bit, even if he is playing, I think it's just going to be one of those, like he's not probably going to be back to himself maybe until like, and this is just me spitballing, like maybe November, right? Just give him a couple more months on top of it just to, to kind of add that back. Number two, um, just kind of looking back a little bit. So this isn't the first time the Munkin and Odell have played together. Um, when Odell was uh, traded to the Browns and that uh, uh, big block was to trade with um, the Giants, uh, Munkin was the offensive coordinator over there, and he had a fairly good season, probably his only really great season with the Browns um, under Munkin. So, I mean, I do think because of that, um, you know, familiarity, I think Munkin will know how to get him the ball and be able to make opportunities for him. Um, I think, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know exactly how Odell feels right now. If you'd ask him, he probably wouldn't say anything, but like, I'm sure he might say something to the effect that like Baker wasn't really, you know, make taking full advantage of all these opportunities <laughs> that he was giving him. I think Lamar, he wanted Odell here, right? I think he's going to get him the ball if he wants it. So I like, I think it could be a really good match if he's healthy. Like I think he could easily be number two in targets for sure. And I think he could have a lot of success. Um, certainly there's a big variance between 
you know, his ceiling and his floor. But um, I think if all the stars align, like he has the right coach, the right quarterback, I, I think he could be number two. I do think Mark Andrews, though, I think he's still got to be number one right now. Awesome. Well, we all have different opinions. Obviously, that makes for a very interesting season. <laughs> Looking forward to learning more as train camp starts up. If you haven't gotten the news, I think it's uh, on July 12th. You can pre-order your tickets to go to training camp and to uh, the public practice at MT Bank Stadium. Quite the interesting day there. It's actually midday this year um, for the open practice, and then the Orioles play the Yankees at home. So you can make a whole day downtown if you so choose in the middle of July when it's super duper hot. Uh, <laughs> I don't Drink think glass I, of water. I don't think I'll be there, even though that does sound like quite a <laughs> quite a cool day of activity. But uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't fault you for it. You know, get a ticket in section eighty six, and uh, if it's even available, and you know, get a, hopefully get a lot of hits and cooldowns. <laughs> but uh, we'll be back eventually with with more shows. But obviously, this is when. All the players are taking a break, and we'll take a little bit of a break, too, in a way. And uh, if there's anything interesting that happens, we'll be back. If not, we'll do some evergreen content. And for sure, you'll hear from us soon. You can find us at OneWinningPod on Twitter. You can email us, OneWinningPod at gmail.com. And like we said earlier in the episode, if you have any comments on this show, make sure to reach out to us on one of those channels. We'd love to hear from you. Go Ravens. Go Ravens.